I grew up in Indiana, just south of Indianapolis, and it's uh, through living those first 18 years of my life in central Indiana where I grew to despise winter. Flat land plus blowing snow plus sub-zero wind chills equals misery. And on top of all that, I had the kind of dad who never missed a day of work. So in the, in the grind of winter, early in the mornings, I had to help him shovel the snow to get out of the driveway. It may not have been this bad, but to a 15-year-old, it seemed like it. And in the evening before he arrived home, I had to do it all again because the wind had blown all the snow back over the driveway. And I believe it was the winter of, I think it was 1976, we had snow drifts all the way up to the gutters of our house. I mean, it was crazy, and we shoveled it for days. The only good thing was we didn't have school for two weeks, and we made some pretty cool snow tunnels to play in. But I realized somebody in here will say, oh, winter is my favorite time of year. <laughs> Here's a question. Do you know of anybody who spent all of their career in Florida and retired in Wisconsin? That didn't happen. My guess is if you love winter, you most likely didn't grow up north of Kentucky. And you didn't have to shovel snow in 20 below wind chills. And you didn't have to wait a few days for the plow to get back to your country road, you know, off the beaten path. When we moved here from Vero Beach, Florida, uh, to Lexington, in December of 1989, we literally, we experienced a literal 100 degree temperature drop. When we left in December of 89, it was 80 degrees in sunny Vero Beach, Florida. And we arrived here, it was minus 20. Our whole, we rented this old house on Park Avenue, and the temperature never got above 50 degrees in there. Our, our heating bill was higher than our rent. And we lived, we lived with Gary and Sue for a, a week or so, right after moving here, because it was just too cold. And what a, I thought, what have we done? This is not a good idea. <laughs> Because of the brutality the months of January and February bring, everyone understands why we refer to challenging seasons of life as going through a winter season. And by the way, there's no mention of winter uh, in the Bible in the Garden of Eden. I want you to notice that. <laughs> we read about trees with beautiful fruit and rivers flowing with no ice on it and no need for clothing. Winter hits after the fall because someone did something very bad. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. So when our, when our souls experience winter, our days are bleak and frigid and brittle. And, and we need a way to hold on when we feel as, God, when we feel as if God has let us go. Uh, your, your winter may come with a job loss or a bankruptcy. Or your winter arrives with a devastating report from your doctor. Your winter may drift in as you watch one of your children just kind of slowly drifting from the Lord. And if winter were a song, this might be the chorus in Psalm 88. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? C.S. Lewis wrote these words after the death of his wife. Where is God? Where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate. When all the other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. The hardest part of a winner of the soul is that we can't find God. 
And that sets the stage up for a man named Job that I want you to think about today. Uh, in the beginning of Job, in the first chapter, it's a brief introduction to who this guy is. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. Job, Job was a man, is from an unknown place. The land of Uz is hard to find. I mean, we don't really know where it is on a map. But the people of Uz, however, knew Job to be one of the best guys around. Kind, gentle, loyal, um, generous, righteous, and a worshiper. Several scholars believe Job to be the first book written in our Bibles. It's possible that Moses may have written Job even before he wrote Genesis. And if this is true, then the very first thing God wanted to communicate to mankind is this. Life is hard, and there is great pain on the way. And though the details may be different, Job's journey is one most of us are familiar with, or we will be familiar with someday, because the bottom line is the same for us. Life is hard. Life is unfair, and great pain is experienced along the journey. Sometimes God seems to be absent where we're the most intent on finding him. Job had a wonderful life, full of family and feast and farming and faith. But winter is about to, to arrive and some very bad things happen to a very good man. Philip Yancey describes the book of Job like a play with two stages. And I like, I like his imagery. Uh, you have an upper stage and you have a lower stage. And as readers, we're privileged to see what's happening on both stages. The characters on the lower stage, however, can only see what's going on around them, and what's going on is terrible. On the upper stage, we're privileged to witness this dialogue between the Lord and Satan, and surprisingly, they're talking about Job. God seems to be the one to put Job in the ring with Satan. Satan makes the claim that the only reason Job wears a Team God jersey is because he's been so successful in life. Life has been easy for him. God has given him everything a man could want. But God doesn't seem to agree with Satan's assessment, so the tragedies begin. Check out the string of events in verse 13 of Job 1. Job gets the news that a rival tribe uh, rolled in and has stolen his oxen, a thousand of them, and his donkeys, 500 of them, and they killed all his workers. In verse 14, Job gets the news that lightning struck and killed his sheep, all 7,000 of them, and the shepherds. In verse 15, Job gets the news that another rival tribe ambushed his workers and made off with all of his camels, 3,000 of them. In verse 17, Job gets the news that a storm blew in and killed all his children, seven sons and three daughters. Bad things didn't just come in threes, they just kept coming. And all of that happened in a very short period of time, yet listen to Job's response in verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's a pretty astounding response, isn't it? Uh, is that your first thought uh, when something of great value is taken from you, a dream, a treasure, a relationship. So that, that's what's occurring on the, on the lower stage. 
On the upper stage, we eavesdrop on a second odd conversation going on between the Lord and Satan. It's almost like they're making a bet. It's, it's really kind of strange. Satan claims Job continues to worship God only because he himself hasn't suffered physically. And God gives Satan permission to cause Job physical pain, and that's what happens next in chapter 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. This time, Job doesn't bow down and worship. There's no talk of the name of the Lord being praised. He does make this statement, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job is beginning to enter a real struggle. The first time the writer tells us Job did not accuse God of wrongdoing. The second route the writer tells us simply, Job did not sin in what he said. So the next several chapters in the book are filled with words spoken uh, by Job's friends. And they come to check on their buddy who used to be known for his wealth, but now he's known for suffering. And these friends sit with him for seven days and just silently, and their silence was a gift. When they spoke, their words were not so much. After seven days, Job has had enough. He's, he's about to boil over, and he decides to say something. Now, if you were in his spot, what would you say? Or better yet, when you've been in his spot, what did you say? What did you say to God about the winter season you were in or you're in today? Was your first thought to burst forth with a genuine, uh, may the name of the Lord be praised? Did you declare that life is unfair? That's the way it is, so just suck it up, buttercup. Job's wife throws out some food for thought, and it may not be what you'd expect to read in your Bible. Her humble, sensitive, caring advice is this to Job. Curse God and die. When Job does speak, he comes very close to her sentiment. He says, may the day of my birth perish. In other words, curse the day I was born. Why didn't I just die at birth? I would have been better off. Job wants to know why God has left him. So Job spends most of his words in this book complaining to God. And if you remember, uh, Barrett walked through the portions of the Bible dedicated to complaining. It's called Lament. Uh, the Israelites devoted more psalms to complaining than any other category of psalms. Maybe, maybe that makes you feel better uh, because maybe complaining is your spiritual gift. So you would kind of fit right in. I read from one source that these kind of complaint prayers aren't found in any other religions in the day. People of uh, ancient religions prayed. They made requests to their gods. They offered worship. They cursed their enemies. But only Israel complained to their god. Because only Israel believed this great God cares that we're in pain and he can be expected to do something about it. We come to God and we ask him to create the kind of condition in our heart that will make resting in his presence possible again. Job is convinced God has left him. In chapter 23, he says, If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. And then Job kind of throws this out. He, he wants to take God to court and bring suit against him. In verse 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 4, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And Job goes on for eight more chapters stating his case, stating his case. And then as chapter 38 begins, Job is stopped in the middle of his argument, and we read these words. The Lord answered Job out of the storm. 
And I wonder what that means. Is this a reference to the storm which has ravaged Job's life? Is this the storm of words which has erupted from Job's mouth? Is it a storm in nature used as an introduction to the Almighty's presence? Were God's words a storm of their own? I mean, what do you think this moment would have been like? As you read through this book, you'll find Job asking of a lot of questions which begin with the word why. Why am I being picked on? Why am I being singled out? Why does my righteousness not seem to make a difference? Why does God seem to be absent? Why was I ever born if this is my plight? Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. God definitely has something to say to Job. To say that God answered Job is probably not how Job would describe what happens next because God never gets around to answering any of Job's questions. God never mentions what has happened up on the upper stage. The Lord instead starts firing a barrage of questions in Job's direction. Here's one observation which has been made regarding God's questions. These questions tell us something about the nature of God. These questions are filled with references to God's extravagant goodness and his generous spirit. Here's one example. In chapter 38, God asks Job, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorms to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it? I mean, why would God water a land where no one lives? John Ortberg has a chapter about Job in one of his books. It was real helpful to me in thinking through this sermon. He writes these thoughts. God takes pleasure in wild oxen that will never plow, the wild donkey that will never be tamed, mountain goats that give birth in secret places, the Leviathan that no one can catch. Nothing on earth is his equal. God wants Job to know this. I am worth following. The pain is temporary. Don't give up. Job never finds out about what happens on the upper stage. And that's something we don't find out either most of the time. We want to know why. We want to understand why winter has settled in on our lives. We want to know why it seems that God has left us. Seldom do we receive any answers to those kind of questions. But I think it might be helpful to hear what Job heard in the explanation God did give him. So here are a few truths about God. God that Job realized. These are in chapter 42. (coughs) Verse 2, I know, Job says, I know that you can do all things. So here's a truth-filled statement. God can do all things. His resources are unlimited. His scope is infinite. And on that topic, there's a a paragraph by A.W. Tozer that I want to read to you that's really pretty powerful, speaking about God. Since he has his command, since he has at his command all the power in the universe... The Lord God Omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. So what I hear there is nothing stands in God's way. Nothing hinders God's work. Nothing alters God's plan. And he holds the most powerful creature ever created, Satan himself, with no struggle. The next thing that Job says he sees is that 
he says to God, no plan of yours can be thwarted. I think that, that's a cool word that I want to use more often is thwart. That, that's just kind of fun to say. We need to put that in our vocabulary more often. Because here, here's another truth-filled statement. Whatever God purposes will occur without delay, without hindrance, and without fail. God is never surprised. He never says, whoa, I didn't see that coming. This, this COVID virus stuff that we're dealing with, this, the southern border of our country that we're looking at, the, the things going on in Afghanistan right now that are heartbreaking, none of this is surprising to God. Things that occur around us on this planet are never out of control. Nothing can stop God's plan. It is impossible. We just need a t-shirt that says, no thwarting. I'd wear it. Verse 3, Job says this to God. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. The message version reads this way. I babbled on about things beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. Isn't, isn't it annoying when you meet someone who goes on and on in an attempt to sound smart or sophisticated, and yet you can tell they don't have any idea what they're talking about? I had a friend who was a tour guide at Mammoth Cave, and I asked him once how he handled questions from visitors, which he didn't know the answer to. He said, I make up stuff. I try never to say, I don't know. Because with the uniform on, if you sound confident, people will buy it and move on. This may be the core message of Job. We are not wired to understand the complexities of God and his work. His ways are too deep for us. Paul says it this way. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? God's ways are too deep. Job was a righteous man who got pummeled by an onslaught of tragic events. Of course, of course he wonders where God is. Yancey had another thought I want to share with you. Um, He's kind of thinking about what, what God could have said to Job that might have been a little more helpful. I can think of several helpful things God could have said. Uh, Job, I'm truly sorry about what's happened. Uh, You've endured many unfair trials on my behalf, and I'm proud of you. You don't know what this means to me and to the universe. A few compliments, a dose of compassion, or at least a brief explanation of what transpired on the upper stage in the unseen world. Any of these would have given Job solace. Yet God says nothing of the kind. God doesn't reveal His grand design, he reveals himself. And if there's one thing God consistently does, it's that. He reveals himself. He wants us to know him. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and lived among us, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I was thinking about this um, question, you know, does, does, does knowing why really help? Um, is the pain removed by knowing the cause? None of our limitations apply to God. 
We don't comprehend the limitless capacity with which he operates. So how could we understand even if he explained it to us? It's like we're wired for 12 volts while God has millions of volts coursing through his being. What bothers us is that God doesn't act like we think he ought to. That's what bugs us. Do you know what Job finally sees? He sees God. And the way the book ends, it seems like that's enough. He doesn't see answers. He gets to a place where he doesn't really need answers. Verse 4 of chapter 42. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. That's what God said to Job. And Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So in the end, Job has questions for God, which God doesn't answer. And God has questions for Job, which Job doesn't answer. But even with no one getting their questions answered, progress is made in the relationship. Job says, my eyes have seen you. You've revealed yourself to me, something I didn't see before. So in this winter season of Job's life, when God seems to have left him, the message from God is pretty simple. He says a few things to Job. He says, I'm here. I'm aware. I care. I'm in control. I will have the last word always. I believe there's something powerful in knowing and believing in those few simple statements when it seems like God has left us. In the epilogue of Job's story, God restores all that Job has lost and then some, but that to me doesn't seem to be the point. I don't think the message from God is with respect to Job's experience is that if you hang in and you don't curse God, then eventually you'll get more than you could ever imagine. That can't be the point because we don't see that happen to people who deal with long winters, brutal seasons in their lives. Sometimes life is hard and it gets harder to the very end. And much is lost along the way. We know too much to come to that conclusion. The point doesn't seem to be that Job gets his stuff back, but that Job had God all along. Or better yet, God had Job all along. I kept thinking of a statement Jesus made at the end of Matthew as I spent time with Job's story. When the disciples felt like all was lost after the crucifixion, Their hope was renewed with the reality of the resurrection. But then Jesus did it again to them. He left them. And they had to wonder, why are you leaving us again? But Jesus let his followers know this important truth. He said, I'm not not leaving you. You are not being abandoned. At the end of Matthew 28, he says, I am with you what? That's right. Even to the very end of the age. And that's God's message to us, especially when the cold winds of winter are gripping our souls. He is here. He is aware. He cares. He's in control. He will have the last word, always. When you're in a winter season, the God of the universe invites you to wrap yourself in the warmth of these truths in his presence. He says to you and me, I will never leave you, and I'm with you always. Let's stand together and sing.